Dish TV is better than cable TV. Here's why. Dish has the nation's lowest TV price, along with an award-winning DVR that can skip commercials, record eight shows at once, and get access to thousands of movies at your fingertips. Cable simply can't even compare. So the smart choice is to cut the cable and get Dish. Plus, you get all these great TV features, free HD DVR upgrade, free installation, and free movie channels. Say goodbye to cable and get more with Dish TV. Call 800-579-0107. 800-579-0107. As an added bonus, you can switch to Dish now and receive a $50 Visa gift card. So call now and get Dish TV. 800-579-0107. 800-579-0107. That's 800-579-0107. Limited time offer, 24-month commitment, and credit qualification required. Cancellation fee, monthly equipment fees, and other restrictions apply. Promotion can change at any time. Let's continue here on From the Press Box to Press Row. Got a a, a, a special guest on the line uh, as a matter of fact. Uh, 19 Major League Baseball All-Star Games played 21 seasons with the Baltimore Orioles. 3,184 hits, 431 home runs. And I'll tell you what, his life after baseball, probably more impressive than his life during baseball, also a baseball Hall of, Hall of Famer. He is the one and only Cal Ripken Jr. Joins us here on From the Press Box to Press Row. Cal, welcome to the program. You know, uh, Jose Mesa used to call me Cal Ripken Sr. because I used to make fun of his age, like he didn't have a birth certificate when he came over. <laughs> so he used to always say, yeah, that's all right, you're Cal Ripken Sr. So I, I take that as a compliment. <laughs> no, and, and we're going to talk about a lot of different things. Your dad was extremely great, and I, I'm just so – I'm really impressed with the fact that you were able to play 21 seasons with one team, of course, while he was also a coach. We'll talk more about that. I grew up a huge Orioles fan. But now, so more recently, this is your first time on social media more recently, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, social media was a little ahead of me, and I always uh, I was curious about it. I, I uh, appreciated the way that people were able to connect. Some players could do it better than others. Um, and I always thought that you had to be a little bit more extroverted, um, and I'm an introvert uh, and kind of like my privacy away from the ballpark. Um, so um, I never really jumped in. But when the opportunity came to, uh, during this crisis for us to switch our foundation focus to, uh, to uh, helping Feed America um, and partnering with Feeding America, I thought it was a great opportunity to reach out and try to use the power of social media. So it was a good excuse to get on, which has been hugely successful. But i got to tell you, I've enjoyed – um, the connection and and uh, and communicating and and I'm learning the uh, the platform and the forum and uh, some of the lingo. Like uh, my handle is at Cal Ripken Jr., which uh, I'm glad that I know that I can say that now. But uh, you know, putting my dog up on a couple of tricks, uh, uh, he seems to be a popular uh, one. But it is truly a way to connect uh, to many people instantly. And I used to always enjoy the connection that the autograph gave me uh, in spring training and during the regular season. But this is a whole new opportunity, and I'm and I'm really enjoying doing it. Yeah, no question about that. So you're just on Twitter now. Is Insta- see Instagram and, and certainly Snapchat. Uh, Snapchat is like for really young people. I'm of a certain age as well, so I'm not a Snapchat person. But Instagram is one of those, and Facebook. Are, are you on anything other than Twitter? Well, you know, um, one step at a time. <laughs> the, uh, uh, I know about myself is that uh, when some people say they can multitask or do uh, multiple platforms, to me, uh, uh, I have to focus on uh, one thing at a time. And so uh, 
I'm enjoying the uh, the opportunity to uh, uh, to share videos and to uh, um, and to deliver the message and really kind of understand how it all works. So so this is uh, I'm I'm more than willing to take it a little slow. Yeah. The one and only Cal Ripken joins us here on From the Press Box to Press Row Strike Out Hunger Campaign. He's partnered with Feed American. For more information on that, and we'll talk more about that, you can log on to ripkinfoundation.org backslash donate backslash strike out hunger. So let, let me start here. Uh, I, I should have started here, but, but how are you and your family doing during this COVID-19 pandemic? Well, I mean, uh, we're all doing the right thing and we're uh, we're we're hunkering down and uh practicing social distancing and uh when we need to go out for groceries and those sorts of things we do it and then we try to do it very organized and efficiently um it's a challenge for uh, everyone no one's ever gone through anything like this um you know sometimes i try to equate it to uh you know uh the the strike of 1994 where we were just sitting at home as baseball players and not having a chance to go do what we do um, but I don't think you can even compare it to that. This is uh, this is different. This is uh, I think I tend to look at it as it's temporary, even though this temporary period, the unknown, has uh, has, has stretched out. Um, still thinking that it will go back to normal, and this is just a temporary thing. Um, keeps you focused on the day to day. It's uh, it's a little bit like the streak in a sense, where you're playing every single day. You can't worry about next week or the week after or even tomorrow. You have to worry about today, and I think that's how uh, we've approached it here in this household where uh, we just try to meet the challenges of the day, and then uh, when we get to tomorrow, do the same. Yeah, no, it's interesting you mentioned 1994 because, of course, in 1995, you, along with Tony Gwynn, helped to bring baseball back. And then on September 6, 1995, you break the streak of Lou Gehrig's 2,130 uh, straight games by playing 2,131. Talk about that. I mean, that was huge, and I was watching it on TV. I mean, it was just like a surreal moment. Yeah, the uh, to understand uh, how it all happened, uh, really context is uh, necessary. And the '94 season uh, stopped about I think August 12th, if I remember correctly. We uh, we went out on strike. Then uh, there was no uh, negotiations really subsequently, and nothing happened. Then uh, the World Series was canceled. The rest of the season was canceled that year, including the World Series. And then the owners locked us out of spring training for the first few weeks of '95. Uh, so when uh, the business side finally cleared cleared up and we all came back to uh, spring training, we had a short period of time to get ready, like three weeks, um, which was plenty of time for a regular player. Uh, the pitchers had to be stretched out a little bit um, quicker. But I remember uh, when the first day I came into spring training is that uh, there was a lot of media interest in this thing called the streak. And I didn't anticipate that at first. You know, I uh, – if things were to go uh, as, as uh, they had in the past, then September 6th would be the uh, record-breaking uh, um, time. But just like any other season, I just wanted to focus on what I was doing now, try to get better, try to contribute to, uh, to the team each and every day. And so, But the media uh, really started to show interest, and they were anticipating this, uh, this moment. Almost for the first time, it felt like there was pressure for me to do it. And I never really looked at it that way before. So... Uh, when we started to go through, the fans were mad, um, and rightfully so. The business side got in the way of them enjoying uh, the sport. And I think all the players felt bad that we took that away from them for a while. And so I think we were all reaching out uh, in ways um, through the autograph or through uh, just being around people. And I know that was on my mind. 
But then the uh, the streak seemed to be something that people um, really were looking. If they were if they were looking for something good and a connection to the past of Oriole or of, uh, of baseball, Major League Baseball, then the streak was that thing. And I think people, uh, you know, looked at it uh, compared to Lou Gehrig in a time when uh, baseball was a sport, you know, not a form of entertainment necessarily or a big form of entertainment. The athletes weren't entertainers. They were sportsmen. And I think that there was a, a gathering momentum for that feeling. And I think a lot of people could relate to what the streak represented, showing up every day, the importance of showing up every day. I know that was wonderful for me to hear everyone's stories about their own streaks, which uh, surprised me. But as the season went on, this anticipation uh, tended to grow. And uh, I don't know whether uh, I could be credited. I mean, the streak itself could be credited for uh, uh, saving baseball or putting baseball back on track again. But I do know a heck of a lot of people cared about it, and they cared about the principle or the value of showing up every day. And it, it, uh, it ended up with a wonderful celebration that nobody could choreograph. Um, uh, I know the Orioles did a nice job with the batters on the warehouse, but nobody could have uh, thought of take a lap around the ballpark and have it unfold the way it did for 22 minutes. So when I think about it, there were so many things that happened uh, during that course of the season um, that ended in the, uh, in the, uh, the record-breaking night that people really uh, held on to. But I feel really good that we played a role in, uh, in helping bring baseball back and bring the fans back to the, uh, um, uh, to the connection with the, with the players. And an amazing, uh, and even more amazing, you played another 501 straight games. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned the fact that you didn't really think about the streak in that fashion. So was there ever uh, a point that you can remember where the streak may have been in jeopardy? Um, you know, the fallacy of the whole thing is when people say, and, they, and there were people that wrote about it, that I was obsessed with the streak and the streak was all I cared about. And it's, uh, it was almost as if it was a lifelong dream. I, mean, I wanted to be a baseball player. I wanted to be the best baseball player I could be. Uh, I wanted to have more hits than Pete Rose or hit more home runs than Hank Aaron. Some of the things that you look at, that's uh, our monumental uh, achievement. So um, your, your individual accomplishments would, would grow, but it never was the fact that I'm, gonna, uh, I'm going to separate myself from everybody else and go after Lou Gehrig's record. Um, everyday player meant, meant something, and it meant that you played every day. And there was an honor in uh, being there for your team every single day, especially if you were in a position uh, hitting third in the lineup or playing short, or Eddie Murray hitting fourth in the lineup and playing first with us. It was an honor. Now, today, the definition of an everyday player has changed a little bit. And uh, so maybe they're expecting 140 games out or 145 games that they can get the most out of those, those players. But in, in when I came up, you were really a thought uh, to be an everyday player and that you were, you were supposed to go out there and meet the challenges every day. And if that manager put you in the lineup, it wasn't an option. You played. And uh, the managers really created the streak. Yeah. No, no question about it. And, of course, help Cal Ripken to strike out hunger. Visit RipkenFoundation.org backslash donate backslash strike out hunger. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. What is it's interesting, like n not many people get to and, and, and of course, Al Kalon passed away uh, a couple of weeks ago, but it's not 
a lot of, of situations where someone gets to play their entire career for their home state organization at the highest level. So what did that mean to you? And of course, having grown up uh, with your father, Cal Ripken Sr., being a part of the Orioles organization. Well, I mean, there's, there's a couple of parts about the, the dream of being a big league player. Uh, when I was a kid, I grew up around the Orioles. My dad was, uh, as you said, was with the Oriole organization. But it was really easy in the Baltimore area to be an Oriole fan. Uh, they were great. They were good. They were in the World Series virtually every year. Um, from the earliest part of my childhood, I remember going to a World Series game in 66, seeing Frank Robinson in a home run, and they swept the Dodgers that year. Um, then in 69, 70, 71, they're in the uh, World Series. Now they won one of them. And my hero, Brooks Robinson, dominated the 70 World Series. So it was easy to uh, root for the Orioles. And, and so part of the dream was I want to be a baseball player, but I want to be an Oriole. You know, I'm from this area. I want to uh, do that. Now, it's really outside of your control. Uh, the draft comes, comes around, and if you're good enough to be drafted, um, you can't control where you go in the draft. But I, I, I just so happened that I was drafted in the second round. We had four second-round picks that year, I believe. And the Orioles took me as one of the uh, four second-round picks, which gave me an opportunity uh, to start my dream uh, in an Oriole uniform uh, in the minor leagues. And once you get uh, through the system and you get to the big leagues, then you feel like you've made it. But then uh, to be able to play your whole career, uh, even in uncertain times, you know, there was many rebuilding processes in that time. We were really great early. We won the World Series early in my career. But we went through some ups and downs. And uh, I always felt that uh, it was important that, uh, that I, I was young enough to get through a rebuilding process the first time. But it was part of my identity and it's part of who I wanted to be. I wanted to write the Orioles and help the Orioles get back to the playoffs. And uh, I'm glad that uh, things worked out that way because many times when you go through rebuilding, they get rid of the whole team and then they start from scratch, um, maybe similar to what's happening with the Orioles now. And so I was really fortunate to, uh, to withstand those sort of movements and still be able to, to to play as an Oriole the whole time my whole career yeah I tell you what guys an Orioles fan I tell you I remember 83 I was I was old enough to remember that uh boy that 88 season was rough 0-21 but then the next season came back finished second almost actually won uh the division and then of course helping to lead the Orioles back in the mid 90s was awesome the 83 season what do you remember most about that the World Series and of course you won league MVP um, well, I was going to say, the uh, when you started to mention 89, uh, in my mind real quickly, the 82 season, which was my rookie year, and the 89 season um, was a, were both really, really exciting years. Um, the 82 season, we went to the last day of the season, and we were tied with the Milwaukee Brewers. We had that final uh, series at, uh, at home where we needed to win. Uh, we were three back with four to play, and they were all against the Brewers, and we beat them the first three games. And then we had ultimately lost. Robin Yount uh, hit two home runs off of Jim Palmer, and he was the MVP of that league. But we were that close to making the uh, uh, playoffs, uh, winning the, the – it was just one game. And we all looked around at each other and thought, you know, we could have made that one game up in any time. We blew this lead here. We did that. Um, we got off to a slow start. So we all looked at uh, each other, and then we went into spring training. It was almost on autopilot that we were all, uh, you know, were, were, there was a sense of urgency to getting off to a good start. And we walked away with the pennant that year. We, we might have won it uh, uh, with a huge 
you know, I'm thinking it might have been 15 to 17 games we were we finished in first place. And then we went on to beat the White Sox and we went on to beat the Phillies in the World Series. But I do believe the experience in 82 with almost identical uh, group of guys, uh, it shaped us and it uh, motivated us to really get off to a good start and, and win the whole thing next year. Now, it, what a way to start my first two years of my career. Rookie of the year, we went to the last day of the season, to win the World Series. Um, and uh, I'm thinking we're going to do this, uh, you know, time and time again. But then we fell into uh, into a, a little bit of a rebuilding process. Um, I know we were good in 84, but the Tigers were better. They got off to that 35-5 start. We were pretty good in 85. Then we started going into the free agent market in 86. We're in that around that time. Um, and then we went through a rebuilding process, which was really painful. But coming out of that rebuilding process after we lost 21 games in 88, uh, the Orioles fired my dad during that time. Very difficult time. But 89 um, was sort of an unexpected year where we had a lot of uh, young, energetic guys, a lot of enthusiasm. They started playing great defense. They started developing as players. I was able to uh, to sit in the middle of that lineup and contribute, and we found ourselves playing the Toronto Blue Jays in the final weekend of the season for the pennant. So we needed to win two out of three to tie, um, and we were winning the first game, and we had Greg Olson came in to close the game out, um, and uh, um, we they ended up coming back and beating us, uh, I believe, on a wild pitch. And the second game we had them beat again, and the same thing happened. They came and snatched it uh, from us in the last inning, um, Greg Olson was great as a, uh, as a closer. And he was the reason we got to that point. Um, tried to throw a couple of curveballs uh, that would break too big and they, they were in the dirt and, uh, and we ended up losing, uh, both those games and we lost the pennant, but that was one of the most gratifying and the, the most exciting seasons because the expectations were so low. Yeah, no question about it. The one and only Cal Ripken joins us here on the program. You can help him strike out hunger. The Strike Out Hunger campaign, he's partnered with Feed America and others. More information can be found at ripkinfoundation.org backslash donate backslash strike out hunger. Interestingly enough, Cal, I mean, you're, you're doing this now, right? But you've always given back to the community. Talk about that and, and what has led you to, in fact, do so throughout the course of your career. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, the influence of my parents, uh, they were always uh, encouraging uh, uh, me to be part of the community. Um, and then my mom even uh, set the standard really high. She said, just think, you know, you go on to be a baseball player, you, you end up making a lot of money. Just think of all the people that you can help with that platform. And so I put that in the back of my mind. And uh, when I signed my first longer-term contract, um, then I felt like, uh, and I had good, I had good role models too. Eddie Murray uh, had given five hundred thousand dollars to the to the city for a for a park in his mom's name, you know, really helping kids out. And he and Ken Singleton, Al Bumbry, I mean, a lot of people that lived in other areas were from California. They came in, uh, became Orioles, and made their home here. And so I felt that uh, you know I wanted to do something. And so I said yes to most everything, um, and all the causes were good. But it really wasn't until my dad died toward the end of my career that uh, we created a foundation in his name where we could really focus our attention on what we thought was important to dad. And dad's legacy was helping kids. And he used baseball to help get in front of kids, sometimes trouble kids, um, that uh, he could talk to them through sport, through baseball, and give them an opportunity to, uh, to stay away from you know, a bad element and give them a di- different direction in their lives. So we started that foundation. And we've, we've built a national foundation 
um, it's unbelievable the uh, the 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 growth of our foundation. Um, I would have been happy just with a regional one, you know, helping a few kids at a time in, in dad's spirit. But uh, we were able to get a great executive director in Steve Salem. He brought along a he built a great board. We have a board of a 35 to 40 people now, influential people all over the country, and we built an infrastructure where we help kids all across the country. We built fields, we built programs, and we're really making a difference with a with a ton of kids. And when this happened, uh, you know, our foundation started thinking, how can we help now? So we shifted our focus to saying, okay, the the most important need now is food um, security, and there's food insecurity all over the place in normal times in some of these areas that uh, um, they rely on the boys and girls clubs or schools to uh, for their meals, and all of a sudden that wasn't happening anymore. So uh, we decided that we're going to put 100 grand up, and then our partners, Ollie's Bargain Outlet, Kevin Harvick Foundation, Group 1001, Niagara Cares, put up a $250,000 matching um, pledge, and uh, all of a sudden we were off to the races. And but I think the biggest value so far, and this is the reason I went on social media, is when you make a case. You know, obviously partnering with Feeding America because they 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 know how to distribute food. We don't know how to do that. We have the right partner. But the biggest thing that they told me was. For every $1 donated, it means 10 meals distributed. So if you think of the value of your dollar, and if you give $10, you're, you're affecting 100 meals. And so uh, collectively, and we've raised a lot of money in our foundation, sometimes $1 at a time uh, through many different people, but it gives people out there with a lot of, not a lot of means um, and, and not really time in which they can go do it, but they can make a difference by, uh, by making a small donation. And that, that was really the appeal of social media. And I don't know what the number is now, but we've raised, we've, we've raised a lot of money, and we're helping a lot, of, a lot of families and kids. Absolutely. Strikeout Hunger Campaign. And for more information, ripkinfoundation.org backslash donate backslash strikeout hunger. A couple of more thoughts with Cal Ripken Jr. who joins us here on the program. So the Ripken experience, like we play travel ball. My son plays travel ball. We were in Myrtle Beach uh, Memorial Day weekend uh, last year. Beautiful facility. Talk about that. Like your name in Little League is as big now as it was when you played in Major League Baseball. Well, I think most of the people uh, say that, yeah, that's uh uh, that's uh, that's Cal Ripken the league, <laughs> or Cal Cal Ripken experience. They don't really equate. Because um, heck, I've been out of my last year was 01, so it's it's running up on 20 years being out of the game. And if you have a 10 year old kid or 11 year old kid, they don't have much much to think about. I mean, thank goodness for the internet where they can Google me if they want, or their parents <laughs> can talk about me a little bit. But they associate uh, the experience they have themselves with the name. And we're really proud to be able to use that name to give kids an opportunity to experience baseball. You know, we, we when I say we, Billy and I both feel that uh, we're not necessarily making big league players uh, by giving them the opportunity because only the very few, at such a small percentage, can go on and, and have a uh, career in baseball. But all the things we experience in baseball, we can try to have the kids experience uh, down at a lower level, which is what the Ripken experience is all about. We try to give them big league amenities, different shaped fields. We try to give them a sense of what it's like to play in Fenway Park. Some of the design things that we've done with ballparks, you know, are some of the things that we've experienced in baseball that we think are pretty cool. Now, you can't build uh, big league replicas all over the place because it costs tons of money, but you can bring thematic 
parts of the uh, fields and dimensions and uh, quality of fields and types of fields in where you can give them an experience. And we're really proud of that. We've built uh, uh, some good models. Aberdeen uh, is more of a regional model. Weekend model, Myrtle Beach is a week-long vacation destination. Pigeon Forge can be a hybrid of both, but mostly a vacation destination. And so we're looking to duplicate those uh, those successes and those complexes around. We just signed a deal with Disney. Uh, so we're doing the baseball softball programming down the wide world of sports of Disney. So we brought the Ripken experience down there, which we're just getting started on. So um, we're making a difference. We're getting to more kids, and we like to duplicate these models in other parts of the country. Yeah, interesting. You mentioned Billy. and What was it like playing with him and your father at the same time? Well, it's really interesting. Uh, many times when we're talking baseball, just sitting around, um, you know, Billy, first of all, is on MLB Network. And if you haven't uh, listened to him, he has the gift of gab. He's got uh, good time, good comedic timing uh, at times. He's very comfortable on TV now, but he has a wealth of knowledge that he puts out. And uh, I really enjoy listening to him. And he's a, uh, He's a really good um, uh, analyst in uh, in the studio right now. I think he's won a couple of enemies for his work. Um, but when we sit around, you know, some people will say, okay, well, who's the best second baseman you ever played with? And the first guy that comes to mind is my brother, Billy. Now, for, for a lot of reasons, uh, and, and uh, because he's my brother, we think a lot alike, but we were able to execute and turn double plays that were some of the most difficult yep. ones because we knew each other real well. Yep. We knew uh, where is the perfect spot when, uh, when I need to turn it with somebody uh, sliding into me really hard. Where do I have to get it so I can catch it and release it and still complete the play? And so it was fun playing with Billy for those five years as an uh, everyday second baseman. And, uh, you know, we were brothers. We got along really well. But if you looked at who was probably the most talented second baseman, you know, was uh, probably Robbie Alomar. Robbie Alomar could do things. Um, instinctively, innately, um, that just made me shake my head and go, man, how do you do that? Uh, give you an example, uh, on a cutoff plate to home, the guys on first base, double down the right field line. It might have been in Camden Yards at the time. The ball rattles around the corner for a minute. Um, you think you have a play at the plate, but also the guy, you might have a play at third. And Robbie catches the ball midstream and lines up to throw the ball to home, but then realizes halfway through his motion that the play's really at third. And with, um, with, with somehow contorting his body and still holding his arm back, he throws a dart to third base. <laughs> and we catch the ball and tag the guy on the third base trying to get into third. And I kept thinking, you know, how in the world did he change his mind right in the middle? So he would do things like that all the time that would just make you stop and think for a second. So from a talent perspective, and he's a Hall of Fame player, and, uh, and I really enjoyed playing with him. But uh, I got to tell you, I really enjoyed playing with Billy uh, in the middle of that diamond because uh, because we thought alike. We uh, we were on the same page almost without words. Yeah, you're right. Some of the great uh, uh, double play uh, that were turned that I've ever seen were, were by you too. So do you, you know, Major League Baseball has changed a little bit over the years, especially rules from a rules standpoint. Like, are you okay? The guys can't take you out uh, at, at short, uh, can't take short stops out anymore. Are you Are you okay with that? Well, I was a little disappointed in, uh, you know, I understand the thought and the logic of that. Um, but I think that's uh, something that, that could have been uh, um, managed through the, uh, the umpires. You know, when I came into uh, the big leagues, and it's not bragging or anything, but uh, the roadblock was still allowed. 
you come running, you didn't even have to slide. You could just start rolling and try, and you could roll past the bag, and there was, there was no real protection for you, and you had to deal with that. Now, there were ways that you could deal with it um, within the sport and all that kind of stuff, but uh, breaking up a double play, um, especially if there was a first and third situation and one out, and if you broke up a double play, you get a run. And sometimes uh, that aggressive base running, you know, it's hard-nosed, it's hard baseball. Um, the, uh, I think what all started that was uh, the collision at home plate with uh, Buster Posey. There were times when you had to run into a catcher who was blocking the plate to score a run, and the object is to score a run. But then, then for a while, it seemed like people were really taking shots at catchers, saying, okay, um, I don't care if I score a run or not. I'm just going to, you know, uh, I want that, that 15 seconds of uh, fame by running over a catcher. So it almost seemed like there was a football mentality, whereas, you know, if you could slide in and score a run, that, the idea is to score a run, not to hurt the uh, catcher. So I think baseball uh, really looked at that, and then that, that went over to uh, the Chase Utley uh, play at second base during the playoffs with the, uh, with the Mets. I remember uh, doing that game. And Chase Utley is a really uh, good, hard-nosed player. And, uh, you know, they're trying to play baseball and trying to score that run, and the one run makes a difference. But there was sort of an overreaction, in my, in my opinion, to how, to how you do that. So now you've almost taken out any of the uh, ability for someone to break up a double play at second base. Um, and I think, I think the game uh, misses that a little bit. Yeah, last, last two thoughts. Uh, who, who are some of the players that you like today? Oh, man. Um, when I left, uh, I was very curious at watching the shortstop that came in behind, you know, because the shortstop and second base, they, they, were, they were one of the more celebrated positions on the field. They used to be thought of as, as uh, defensive positions and not much offense. But then all of a sudden, some of the game's best offensive players were coming through those positions and staying there, which gave me a great uh, sense of pride watching that. I mean, uh, the young guys, and when Tulowitzki came behind me, he was the first guy I was really looking at. But, I mean, uh, uh, Lindor, uh, you know, uh, Seeger uh, out in uh, – out, out he's a big dude, too. And he handles the position really well, um, you know, and brings a lot of offense, uh, you know, to your team. So, to me, I think just Jenry Correa is another one. It seems like they're continuing to look at the shortstop second baseman not only as key guys in the middle of the infield, but key guys on offense. Yeah, and the last thought, perhaps a third generation of a Baltimore Oriole in, in Ryan, how, your son, how's he doing? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. My son uh, first went to college um, and then, uh, you know, got redshirted down in uh, South Carolina, didn't like that, left, went to a JC, and then got drafted. And so he was in the Nationals organization, and then he got hurt right away, which uh, um, if you can imagine some of the people giving him grief about that, then your dad <laughs> right. played all those games in a row and you get hurt in your second game. <laughs> right. But he really hurt his ankle bad, which then required surgery, and he missed a good portion of time of, of his development time and almost lost his opportunity in uh, the Nationals organization. The Orioles uh, took a chance on him and signed him, and he's a big kid, 6'6", 245, and he uh, looks on the lean side of 245. And uh, he's, got, he's got good pop, good uh, swing, and he's a first baseman. And he really started to come into his own uh, last year. He started to show signs of uh, hitting the ball over the fence. He started to show signs of uh, the ball comes off his bat. His uh, exit velocity, as they say now, uh, is really good. And uh, he hit 284 last year in Bowie, in AA. So it looks like if things uh, uh, get started again, that uh, his next challenge would be probably starting in AA again. Or, you know, depending upon what the op opportunity is, he could uh, be a AAA. But, 
he's he's uh he's 26 years old so maybe a little old um by some standards but a lot of players now um uh, can can be a little bit late bloomers but i think he's got a shot he's uh he started to figure it out he started to he could hit somebody that throws 95 97 and he also can hit uh, some of the off-speed pitches as well as he's gotten used to seeing them um if you can cut it in double a in my opinion you got a shot to make it in the big leagues because double A is when the pitchers really start understanding their control and they start mixing their pitches in at different times. And if you have a weakness uh, as a hitter, you can be exploited pretty good in double A and it just gets better in triple A gets better in the big leagues. So the way I evaluate my son is he's got the drive. He's got the determination. He wants to do it and he's cut it in double A now, which gives him a chance. Wow. Follow him on Twitter now at Cal Ripken, Ripken Jr. Of course, Strikeout Hunger Campaign is in effect now. He's partnered with Feed America and others. For more information, log on to RipkinFoundation.org backslash donate backslash Strikeout Hunger. He's the one and only Cal Ripken joining us here on From the Press Box to Press Row. Cal, I really appreciate you doing this. Appreciate your time. Continued success in everything you do and you and your family stay safe, okay? Yeah, I really appreciate you spreading the word. I mean, uh, you know, us, uh, you know, helping out with food is, uh, is really an important thing. And, uh, and it helps, uh, you know, every, every time that we're able to mention it and every time we're able to get it out there and reach out to people that, uh, that want to help, um, uh, it's, it's been wonderful. So thank you for that, and thank you for allowing me to talk a little baseball. Absolutely. Appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. All right, man. Okay, be good. All right, you too. All right, now. Thanks. Bye.